Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy folks, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. Today's episode is about Mars, because it's, it's in, in the news. news. Perseverance recently landed on the surface of Mars, a wonderful new rover hanging out there in space. And people are talking about it, so we're going to talk about it. That's right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We are going to talk about it, Sarah. We're going to talk about it so hard and so long. Oh, God. Perseverance has been, it's it's been big in the news. Like, it's it's really all you can hear about from a science perspective right now. Um... As someone who doesn't have space come into their sphere too much in terms of information, I've seen a lot about Perseverance. Mm. So were you were you a Mars kid then when you were growing up? Was that a big thing for you? Like new rover, new new images from the other planets? Maybe you were a big space kid. I was not. Mm. No, mm. I was not a big space kid. I was a play in the dirt kid. Yeah, I was a big space kid, and I, I think you know we. If I if memory serves, there was a there was like a Mars rover exhibition at the Science Center here in Calgary. Actually, uh, growing up, like that was somewhere we went like two or three times a week when I was at a school as a as a as a youngin, and I was a big space kid. I I really liked seeing like the images of the other planets and you know it's not something that like super persisted for me in my in my science career so to speak but i've always really been interested in things on the science on from space on the science side of things uh, more from a hobbyist standpoint for sure but yeah like i was definitely a big space kid so for me like i have really crystallized memories of like the other rovers or even just thinking about like what mars like mars's significance and things like that so did did perseverance's landing like what kind of space did it occupy in your brain for the last week or so then i think it's so neat that we can put a rover like Perseverance onto another planet and we can learn something about another planet from up close and we can learn about what what the rocks are made out of and how the weather systems work and all of this really cool information that we just can't get from far away. Yeah to say nothing of like the the engineering challenge to get a rover to Mars, a rover the size of a car, right? An SUV, a big car. Mm-hmm. I, like, I have enough trouble getting my Yaris out to the mountains here. We're talking about you're sending something that, that is that large via rocket to another planet and then getting it to, to touch down safely. And, and as we're going to talk about, right, like that is pretty much one of the biggest challenges that a lot of these missions over the, over the years since, you know, about the 1960s have really faced about getting something onto the surface of Mars or even just around Mars. One of the reasons it's so hard is because Earth and Mars are both constantly moving, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. as they both orbit the sun in what's called an elliptical orbit, which is kind of like an oval. Uh, Mars and Earth get closer to each other and farther away from each other, which means that you're always trying to hit a moving target from a moving target. And that's actually why it wasn't just Perseverance that went off into space recently. There were two other missions that got shot out into space, one from China and one from... The United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates. And they all went off, I believe, in July 2020 because Earth and Mars were actually as close together as they would be for a couple of years. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting the the launch window that allowed all of those missions, which are coordinated through through some international cooperation on Mars missions, 
allowed them all to launch at the same time, it, that those types of launch windows have actually been pretty significant for Mars exploration. You know, we were going through the various like historical logs of all of the missions, the international missions going back to the 60s and and a lot of them are launched in these really tight windows really close to each other and all reach the planet. And to, to certain, it's interesting to think about ones that are launched in the same launch window and those that succeed and those that fail uh, comparably. Um, we'll, we'll explore a few of those, those key examples over the years. But I mean, it makes sense, right? Like you can, you can send something off and have it take, I think it's seven months right now. Yeah, seven-ish months. Or you can wait and it's going to take you upwards of a year right? To, to make the same. It would be like sending something standard post versus sending it in a courier. Mm. And while that might not matter so much for a rover, uh, I mean, obviously there's fuel considerations still and things like that. And any trip to space is challenging, but you know, it's, it is, it's really guiding the way for, if we want to send humans, it, it's really, you have to limit the amount of time that you're in space. Otherwise you have to have a really significant ability to, to you know, reduce radiation and, you know, all these fail safes for your ship and things like that. So we always practice around these launch windows. It just makes everything easier. Yep. So what's so interesting about about Perseverance? Because Perseverance is actually um, really similar to a robot, to a rover that was launched or has been on the planet for about the past five years. Actually, sorry, no, that's wrong. It was launched in 2012. So it's been on the planet for quite a while. Uh, it had about a five-year-long mission. And... That one's name is Curiosity. Yeah, and it's, Curiosity is very similar to to Perseverance. They have some very similar, their design is very similar, They're about the same size. And they have some, but they have some really different instruments. So like, what are some of the things that make Perseverance so interesting comparatively? Yeah, well, just like with any tech here on Earth that we've seen really, really advance in the last few years, it's the same with all the tech that we can send into space, right? I mean, think of like phones in 2012. <laughs> That's pretty different mm -hmm. than phones mm -hmm. today. So with Perseverance, it's got a whole bunch of shiny new gadgets. Yeah, it has some it, it, it has some really interesting interesting technology. And the contrast to the Curiosity mission is interesting is one of the things that one of the more official names for the Curiosity mission was the Mars Exploration Lab. And it was basically a mobile laboratory to analyze soil samples. So Curiosity could take samples from Mars and using a suite of instruments that were kind of housed inside of it, it could do certain tests on them. Those operations are like extremely energy inducing, like, and you know, and obviously energy is a big problem when you're on another planet. Ener uh, energy intensive. Energy intensive, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so one of the differences that Perseverance has is that it's gonna actually take core samples, and the plan is to to collect those samples later, isn't it? Yeah, it's just gonna, uh, it's just gonna drive by, take a little core sample, drill down, and then just like leave it for another mission that I believe is hoping to launch next year or in a couple of years. Uh, and then that robot will come down and pick up and collect all those samples and hopefully shoot them back to Earth. So it'd be the first time that we would actually get Mars rocks on Earth, which mm -hmm. is cool. We haven't done that before. Yeah, and that's super significant because like, regardless of the quality of instrument that obviously is contained within a rover like Curiosity, it doesn't compare to the type of analysis that you could do in a dedicated lab here on Earth. And it, actually, the, the plans for these core samples really also kind of highlights a main part of this international cooperation is even to get those samples back is it's a joint operation between NASA and the European Space Agency or the ESA. Uh, and it's going to require rovers from the ESA, launchers from NASA, orbiters from NASA, all to kind of get the entire project done. Not super straightforward. Yeah. And very expensive. 
So it makes sense to have more uh, pockets to draw from. <laughs> you, you can't have a conversation about space exploration without inevitably bringing up the insane price tag that is associated with space. I mean, that has honestly been... Space exploration today, it's interesting, is probably way more of a PR battle. Actually, historically, has always been way more of a PR battle than it is even really a scientific challenge. Like, I mean, a, a, a rocket engineer is going to come in here and slap me upside the head. But... <laughs> why did we stop going to the moon? Not because we couldn't do it technically, but because people stopped caring. Even by the time that Apollo 13 was launched to the moon, people didn't care. Like the TV ratings, which is a really weird way to analyze rocket launches, <laughs> the TV ratings for that mission were, were, were for, for 12 even were abysmal. And 13 is only so significant in our minds because of what happened to 13. But I digress. But the point is, is that it is really interesting. You cannot talk about space without talking about the price tag. And that's why it's become so much more important to have this level of international cooperation while we're doing these types of things. Mm -hmm. Go back to the historical log and you look at obviously a period where the USSR and NASA would have not been cooperating with each other, right? There would not have been a lot of knowledge sharing freely between the two organizations. The space race. As, yeah, as, it, as it's sometimes known as. Some of you may have heard this term before. Um, it's more fun to give things fun names. <laughs> exactly. At least they didn't call it Space Gate. I think it was before that time, yeah. obviously. That's a yeah. really weird reference to make. That is. Uh, <laughs> I like Space Race. Yeah, so some of the other tech that it has, so it, it can like drill these cores and leave them to hopefully be picked up by another mission. But one of the things it has is the Mars Oxygen In Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, known as MOXIE. All of the tech has a really fun, have really fun acronyms because you get annoyed saying all these words all the time. So MOXIE, what it's gonna to attempt to do is take Martian atmospheric carbon dioxide, which is the main uh, gas on Mars. It's gonna to attempt to take it and kind of like condense it down, like squish it down a lot and make it into oxygen or use it to make oxygen, which will be really, really important. You know, if we ever send oxygen breathing creatures like humans, to Mars, having something like MOXIE, a proven technology that can produce our own oxygen from the Martian atmosphere would be really, really significant. Yeah, one of the really interesting things about MOXIE and the, the unit that's included with Perseverance is that it's actually a scaled down version of the technology that NASA has created for this purpose. The full goal of this technology, so we're gonna test it as part of MOXIE. And the goal is to launch a sort of full-scale version of this that is going to sit on Mars for like a year leading up to potential human exploration. And one of the things it's going to do is, one, create oxygen for any potential habitation on the planet. But two, and this is sort of the one that sometimes escapes us, we always think about, okay, well, we would need to produce oxygen so that we could breathe. But we forget sometimes that fuel is really heavy. And fuel requires oxidizers to work, like oxygen. And without the presence of oxygen, you can't actually really ignite rocket fuel. Most rocket fuel actually has solid oxygen in it. But uh, so what the what Moxie in its sort of full form is going to do is also produce the oxidizers for fuels to get back off the planet. And what that means is that potentially you don't have to bring return fuel with you. And that just means you can carry more instruments and more people and, you know, just a larger payload. I think I imagine that the first few missions with people going to Mars will not rely solely on the fuel that we're trying to create on the planet. And they may be one way. Like, that's one thing I've always heard about with the, sending humans to Mars is like, the first humans is probably going to be a one-way trip. Mm -hmm. I, I had read that one of the things that they'd looked at was it, what is the potential um, radiation exposure for someone? And it's actually something that curiosity 
was was exploring because curiosity actually had a radiation detector on it the back of it so does uh, perseverance if memory serves but basically through that combined with our understanding of the radiation exposure from the space travel the esa was able to figure out that with 180 days travel which is using the advantageous launch window with and a 500 day mission on the planet and then another 180 days to return from the planet you are looking at um, what's called, what's one sievert of uh, radiation exposure. So you get into a bunch of stuff about like what's a sievert and things like that. It's a fun um, word. But just for context, like one sievert is the limit set by the ESA for a lifetime exposure for an astronaut. And it corresponds to a 5% increase in the risk of fatal cancers over your life. This type of radiation exposure is a concern for all types of astronauts, and it's something that's monitored. But in terms of what we experience on, like, day-to-day, like, an, a full-body x-ray is something like only 0.15 of a sievert. It's even actually less than that, I think. That was an overestimate. But Yeah. And the reason that radiation is so damaging and the way it can cause cancer is it messes with your cells and your DNA and your cells' ability to split properly and, mm-hmm. and create new cells which is what cancer is doing is typically creating new cells in a bad way. I mean, that could be a topic of a whole other episode that science of cancer for sure is quite interesting. But yeah, often when people are talking about radiation, the thing they're talking about is ionizing radiation, which is like you said, the stuff that's going to really muck around in your DNA and cause serious damage. So it's a thing we got to be pretty conscious of, sending <laughs> and, people to Mars. <laughs> and, and actually one of the reasons why that type of radiation even comes up a lot in talking about Mars rovers is that one of the technologies that both Curiosity and Perseverance take advantage of, if you've read The Martian uh, or seen the movie, you, you might have remembered this, is that they're powered by an RTG, which is a fancy device that basically takes a piece of radioactive material which is decaying and giving off heat. And it uses the heat that is going to be naturally coming off this piece of, you know, earth, essentially, to create an electrical current through a special conducting material, uh, through, you know, through the use of some special semiconductors. And that actually provides the main power source to both of those rovers. And then you can supplement it with other, um, with batteries and things like that. But so Curiosity and Perseverance don't actually have solar panels. Uh, the same way that, like, when we thought, think about Spirit and Opportunity, they were almost entirely solar panels on top because you needed all that surface area. And then long term, that's kind of what was, in a way, they're undoing on the planet. I mean, they both lasted much longer than we'd ever hoped they would. But solar plant panels, it's uh, it makes sense we've kind of moved away from them, or the, the space people have moved away from them, because uh, Mars is a really dusty planet and there's a lot of dust storms. So there was one rover, was it... Uh, was it with Spirit or Opportunity or one of them? So Spirit, the, Spirit's the one like famously was cleaned by a dust yeah. devil, they yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah. It, like the the people at NASA were starting to notice that the power levels were going down, and they're like, "What's going on?" And they figured maybe a lot of uh, dust had settled on top of the uh, the solar panels. And then one day it was operating at full power, and they thought maybe a dust devil came by and clean. A dust devil's like a, a little tornado of dust. Uh, a dust devil came by and cleaned off the rover very nicely so then it could operate at full power again. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And that has been, like, you know, it's been the big disadvantage of solar panels. Uh, RTGs have some disadvantages, too. The power output is quite low. And over the life of your radioactive element, you're always losing it, kind of in the same way you would with a battery. And so eventually you are going to be producing less power. 
interesting thing about perseverance compared to curiosity is the uh, they're using I believe it's a it's a special plutonium isotope that they're using in perseverance and the half-life is actually like 93 years so they so they sort of start so you hear some of the jpl guys start talking about the jet propulsion lab guys who do a lot of you know basically they're nasa's rocketry group and they handle most of the mars missions and things like that but you'll hear the jpl guys kind of talk about like oh you know and eventually it's going to only be producing about half as much power over the course of its lifespan and then they're like yeah once it reaches the half-life of 93 years (laughs) so it's like okay well like it's not like in six weeks time it's going to be producing half as much power because this element is decaying so rapidly but that was a difference with that's you know a big leap that that science has made is curiosity didn't have that same same longevity one other thing curiosity didn't have that perseverance has is like a little drone on board. It's like a little, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little helicopter. It's called an Ingenuity. It's on the underside, right? Yeah, so it's stored on the underside, and this is going to be kind of detached from the rover. Right, mm-hmm. and then it can be detached, and it's kind of more of like a tech, a tech demo of the first powered flight on another planet, which is pretty cool. So it's got these like dual helicopter blades spinning in different directions. And what's so difficult about this and why it's not just like, all right, so they put a drone on another robot. That's not very interesting. What's so hard about this one is that the Martian atmosphere is a lot thinner than on Earth. So on Earth, uh, helicopter blades... 1% of the the same atmospheric pressure as on Earth or atmospheric content. Yeah. So way thinner. Way thinner. Way thinner. (laughs) So on Earth, you have to spin like helicopter blades, for example, at a certain speed. And as you spin them, you're pushing air down. And that's what helps to keep the helicopter afloat. But on Mars, there's just so much less atmosphere. There's so much less air that the blades have to be like wicked strong because they got to spin super duper fast in order to give the the little ingenuity any ability to to take off at all. Yeah, and ingenuity, I believe, it only is going to have about a 90 second flight time. Uh, it has its own couple uh, lithium-ion batteries that it's traveling with and its own little solar panel that it'll generate power from. So its power is completely independent of of Perseverance. And and like you said, yeah, it's a little tech demo. And the actually one of the main goals of the tech demo is to, to produce this powered flight on another planet because NASA has plans to send a rover. I don't know if you would still call it a rover, but to send a mission to Titan that's going to try to make it take advantage of a helicopter-style drone to, to image that moon uh, rather than a rover. One of the one of the little uh, one of the little devices that is on perseverance that particularly caught my interest and uh, and and as as a chemist and as having studied a little bit of materials chemistry was this Sherlock arm. And it's really quite, so that acronym is the Scanning Habitable Environments with Ramen and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. So obviously they shortened it to a super clever acronym, Sherlock. Yeah. Wait, wait, <laughs> ramen? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I guess I suppose I'm always not quite pronouncing that correctly, but like ramen spectroscopy is spelled R-A-M-A-N. So not like Japanese noodle spectroscopy. Um, <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah, and, and this is a really, really interesting piece of technology. So, and again, one of those kind of differences between between curiosity and perseverance that's really interesting is that curiosity had a similar type of arm but it was for taking samples taking samples and analyzing them within itself and then sending that data back where uh, sherlock is more of a it's more of like a it's you can almost think of it like a like a camera like a type of camera or a microscope that is going to try to see 
at these really intense resolutions and then scan these sections of the Martian surface. And so when we talk about this type of spectroscopy, one of the things that's really interesting is that it's essentially, it's taking advantage of some of the qualities of light or of electromagnetic radiation. So everything from visible light, UV radiation, infrared radiation, uh, and utilizing how that type of radiation interacts with matter to tell us about it. So basically this technology has come really far in the last 20 years, uh, material science in general, and it's allowed us to see a greater and greater and greater resolution into material and to detect onto surfaces, you know, to the micron level, what molecule is here? What is the, what is the kind of makeup of this, of this surface here? Uh, even to the point where other applications of different types of spectroscopy have gotten to the point where they can kind of visualize atoms uh, which is really significant. But what's interesting about, so what this instrument does essentially is it's got a laser in it. So the, the laser is gonna be at a very specific wavelength of light. Sometimes we call it monochromatic light. And that, and when I say monochromatic, you, you, you know, you might think light with a red gel in front of it. So you're only getting red light. I thought black and white. And that, and that's pretty close too. Yeah. But really what it means from a spectroscopy chemistry standpoint uh, is that you are sending to the like tenth of a wavelength a specific color of light one specific wavelength of light that's how you kind of get that monochromatic I had a professor in university who was sort of obsessed with this concept and he would never fail to remind us that the school's color was exactly 420 nanometers that was the color of purple that was like in the logo of the school. It was a specific color that the school had designed. And he had analyzed it with a spectroscoper that he had. Chemists get bored sometimes. Uh, yeah, if, <laughs> Professor Dang, if you're out there, you rock. Um, you, you know, and, and so basically what this does is it's going to shoot a laser at the surface. And there's different types of spectroscopy. So you can do it with like a light, with visible light, a laser visible light or ultraviolet light. You can also do it with x-rays and there's different um, considerations for all of these things. But what happens is you're hitting the surface with light and most of what we, most of what happens is we call it elastic scattering. So it's like traditional physics. So if you think about like, if you throw a tennis ball at the wall, it's gonna bounce back to you, right? With largely the same amount of force that you threw it at the wall with, right? You're not gonna have a ton of dampening. Yes. Um, that's an elastic collision. Right. So if you remember, like energy can never be, you know, destroyed or created. It only transfers forms. So when you, you know, you throw that tennis ball, it hits the wall and then the energy comes back out. And the wall is going to absorb some real, some energy because we're on Earth and we deal with classic physics and not quantum physics. But what happens at a quantum level is that so you've got this photon of light. If it hits for the most part when it hits something, it's just gonna bounce back off in the other direction. We call it kind of like the, the point of incident or whatever. And it's just gonna bounce back off and scatter. We call that Rayleigh scattering. That's pretty much like what you're always seeing. That's normal. Um, that's just how light hit, hits objects. So that's just, we've got like a little package of light, right? Like a little particle of light bouncing off of a thing and bouncing off in another way. Yeah, and and just like with the way that like a super ball would bounce or the way that a basketball would bounce. So we call it this elastic collision because they're bouncing off of each other. But there's another type um, that's way, way, way less common and it's called, it's called Raman scattering. 
and it's named after the man who discovered it. Oh. And, uh, you know, I think he was C.V. Raman or something to that effect. But uh, I always just remember the guy's last name, of course. Uh, <laughs> and basically what... And, and then the funny thing is, is that this was proposed long before it was discovered and long before we even had laser technology to actually prove why it was useful for spectroscopic method. So when... When Raman first kind of described it, it was really just more of a phenomenon. It was more of interest because we needed to understand how materials reacted to light. So what happens with Raman scattering is that it's an inelastic collision. So it's sort of the opposite. It's kind of hard to imagine from an, a regular classic physics perspective because things don't behave this way, right? <laughs> you throw a ball at the wall, it bounces back to you. It oh. doesn't just deaden against the wall. Oh, so this would be like, yeah, you throw the ball against the wall and it just like hits and falls? Kind of. I, but at I'm, the quantum level, so it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so so what happens at the quantum level is everything is in discrete levels. So there's not like, you, you, it would be sort of like if you could be six feet tall or you could be seven feet tall, but you could be no space in between. Okay. Right? Um, that's sort of what it means to be discrete is that you have these very specific levels. So it, and a molecule might have like energy level zero, which would be its natural energy state that it wants to exist in. Just hanging out. Yeah, exactly. And then it might have within that a few levels that are based on other motions. It gets really complicated but the idea is that like it can only take specific steps up in energy level so what Raman uh, what inelastic scattering does is that or happens is that essentially you've got you know this ray of light this photon hitting the surface and almost you can almost imagine it like getting absorbed for like that split second like the molecule for a split second is going to hold on to that piece that photon that photons energy and it's going to take a little bit of that photons energy so actually almost like in the real world like when you throw a ball right you bounce a basketball you just let it drop from your hand eventually that basketball is going to rest on the floor because you're losing energy which eat with each subsequent reaction with the ground uh, because of the friction and the air resistance and all those things but from a quantum level what's happening is essentially you have hit this atom or molecule in exactly the right way with the right photon of light that it is going to absorb a little bit of energy and the photon of light that you get scattering back out because it does have to kind of come back out eventually otherwise it would just be fully absorbed is going to be slightly lower energy than the energy you put into it and that can tell you the composition of what you're looking at huh. so every element these bands will be different and they'll be specific to the element or to the molecule. And using this type of spectroscopy, we can kind of interpret a specific range and we can look for certain types of molecules. And then they're coupling this with a much more traditional type of spectroscopy, which is more making it taking advantage of those elastic, actually not so much of those elastic interactions, but it's luminescence. So it's the same idea in that basically what they're doing is they're hitting the sample with a certain wavelength of ultraviolet light in this circumstance. And then that, much like you're kind of, I'm going to say glow in the dark, even though, yeah, that's phosphorescence. <laughs> but I know, like bioluminescence, you have like a firefly that has a little chemical reaction going on in its butt, essentially, that's starting to give off light. And exactly. So it's sort of like you are essentially you're blasting the sample with a powerful enough piece of light and within whatever wavelength, you know, even if you're going into x-rays, even if you're going into UV and you're trying to collect back on the sensors what the what the what the molecules within the sample are fluorescing back to you. And why this is significant for Perseverance's mission specifically. So one of Perseverance's like main goals is to try to identify 
like the organic molecules and not even just in like the building blocks of life sort of way of like, oh, we found these elements on the planet like other rovers have done, but really specifically to figure out like, are there potentially amino acids on this planet that are just sitting around, you know, have dried because of the oceans that have dried up? Are there these very specific things that life require to build itself, molecules that still exist? And the reason that this type of spectroscopy works to define to detect it is because uh, a lot of organic molecules are defined by what we call aromatic rings so when you think about like that dna structure you got the double helix and all of the dna base pairs if you've ever seen them they have like two rings they all kind of have a ring structure on one side and then a bunch of other stuff and the other stuff matters of course because that's what <laughs> codes your dna but the the backbone of all of these molecules is this ring structure, and they're called. It has what's called aromaticity, so it's sharing electrons among quite a few atoms. It's what gives them all this. gives them a lot of strength. It's actually what also creates color, like pigment. So when you think about a plant with pigment, it's got a lot of these different rings in different arrangements that cause light to interact with it in a particular way. So certain wavelengths are going to get absorbed, and then you're only going to see, you know, the yellow light reflected back to you in a pigment. What this means for, for studying samples is that you're going to get this fluorescence back out that is going to be specific to certain types of molecules. And then this instrument is, is designed to be looking for organic molecules. You could do this type of spectroscopy to look for all sorts of different things. And we want to, scientists want to do this on Mars specifically because from images we've gotten from past, uh, past orbiting, rovers and rovers missions, and, missions yeah. and things like that, is it has shown that there was water on the planet. Um, as recently as, I believe, 2,000 years ago, I think was the last number that I heard. And you can see this because of the way that the, the soil is shaped, is you can see that there was like a delta here. Or the only way that this sort of carving happened between these, these rocks mm -hmm. is by water flowing through for long enough and at a powerful enough level to carve it out. And where there's water, there can be life or so we mm -hmm. know on earth right so and that's why they're looking for these mm -hmm. and especially like like you said the type of water behavior we're seeing in the in the sort of quote-unquote like fossil record of the planet you know the sedentary rock and things like that you know yeah you're seeing these river deltas these things that are indicative of flowing water of standing water for long periods of time we're also talking about you know craters that are clearly you know dried up lake beds that are not you know we're talking about over a kilometer like huge areas where there would have been water versus you know at one point there was some belief that water may have existed for a very short period on mars what we've you know this as we've gotten greater and greater resolution pictures of mars and greater samples of the surface itself we have been able to more confirm that yeah what we're seeing is evidence of long periods of a wet mars mm -hmm. with flowing water which is and and salt and seawater which is yeah. really really interesting which doesn't happen anymore because uh doesn't have the atmosphere for it so any water that does form on the surface of mars either gets evaporated really fast or it turns into ice so that's why there's no water or not i believe there's frozen water and it's ice caps yeah, so Mars does have ice caps, although it's quite, I believe there's a lot of nitrogen in the ice caps and on I Mars. And I think carbon dioxide and, Yeah, actually, well. I think you're right. I think yeah. it's more carbon dioxide. So it's not like the polar ice caps here on Earth where most of our fresh water is actually contained in them. Mm -hmm. It's it's more of, there's a lot of CO2 on Mars. And just like on Earth, you know, the poles are going to be the coldest. And Mars also, if, our, if memory serves, doesn't have a tilt the same way that Earth does. 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't have to look that up. <laughs> but um, let's let's talk about how mm-hmm, we know mm-hmm. some of this stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, perseverance absolutely. is very exciting. It's the it's the newest one, but we've been uh, we've been going to Mars since the '60s. We've been trying to get there. Yeah, that's right. Like the first uh, the first attempted mission actually was was performed by the USSR, uh, and this is you know 1960s. We are talking like height. Of the Cold War, like about as tense as things got, which I'm obviously an expert in, being twenty something years old. Um, but yeah, like it, and and it's really interesting. You because now there's this everything about Mars now is done through this lens of international cooperation. So even when you hear about you know three different missions reaching Mars all within the past few months, those missions are to a certain extent coordinated to each other. Well, they kind of have to be. I mean, if you're shooting something into space, trying to take advantage of this one window to send something from Earth to Mars, where you're going to have to do so much math and make sure your math is perfect, and someone else and somewhere else on Earth is trying to do the same thing, if you don't coordinate, your ships, like, could crash into each other. Because you're operating on these very, very, like, razor-thin margins, cooperating with each other, especially in this era. Kind of makes sense. Now, yeah, and and is it more is it more the risk of the missions interfering with each other from like a technical, like a physical standpoint, or is it more that you don't want to double tap on certain <laughs> certain things, right? Like if I'm researching, you know, if I've got you know spectrometer A on the planet, but it can't do the things that spectrometer B does, then and you and I are both launching multi hundred million dollar probes to the planet. You know, it makes a lot of sense to say, hey, I've got spectrometer A. I'll give you spectrometer A's information, but put spectrometer B on your rover so that we can share that information because we both need we need both parts of it. I mean, that's obviously a major oversimplification, but the missions have different scientific objectives that are all related to the overall international Mars exploration goals. Yeah, which is going to give us a much better understanding of the planet and a much better a knowledge basis for it. If we can share this information and build on it, then it's no one has to reinvent the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's really interesting. You start to look at the history of Mars exploration, and, and something like almost fifty percent of <laughs> uh, of the Mars missions have failed in some way. Yeah, <laughs> and you can really see this contrast. I think, like from the end of the space race, even towards the end of the Soviet era, era, you know, like in the nineties where even, sorry, the late 80s, where the the cooperation starts to ratchet back up. And then you start to see these, like, failure... You, st- you start seeing less of these failures for the same reason, <laughs> um, like you did in the early years. A lot of uh, couldn't get off of Earth sort of thing, couldn't mm-hmm. get out of Earth's mm-hmm. orbit, um, because as you try to shoot something off of Earth, you have to shoot it fast enough and hard enough, basically, to get it out of Earth's gravity. But then once you're in space, Earth is still trying to pull you back. Mm-hmm. So you got to get out of Earth's gravity, and then you're in space. And then you somehow have to make it to the next planet. And then when you're at the next planet, you have to get caught in their orbit, or you have to get onto the planet, all of which are steps where things can go horribly, horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. My favorite uh, reason for why one didn't work, there's a lot of like radio failure, or like we just lost contact with it, so we don't know what happened. But my favorite one was in uh, 1973 with Mars 4 just flew past Mars. Something went on with their math or with uh, the instruments and it just went past. 
<laughs> you know, and I, I, I want to go back a little bit in the timeline of the Mars mission. So the Mars, like Mars 4 is a USSR mission. And so that was the naming designation that they were using at the time. So uh, I want to go back to the preceding missions, Mars 2 and Mars 3, because uh, Mars 2, or sorry, Mars 3 actually does hold, does hold the, um, the, pre- the prestigious place of being the first rover to land on Mars. Mm-hmm. So the first rover to actually land on another planet. It only transmitted for about 20 seconds, but it did manage to send one image back to Earth. And you can look up this image. I'll, I'll, link, I'll link one in the description. It, <laughs> the argument could be made, is it a picture of the surface of Mars or is it radio snow? But it's still significant in the fact that it was able to transmit this piece of information. And what is interesting about Mars 2 and Mars 3 is they were launched around the same time of a, of a much more successful and maybe a little bit better known U.S. mission of Mariner 9. So Mariner 9 returned thousands of images from the planet, but was an orbiter. It wasn't a rover. And they those three missions, Mars 2, Mars 3, and Mariner 9, were all launched in the same launch window, a la Perseverance, the UAE, and China's missions all being launched at around the same time. Mars 2 and Mars 3, however, did have lander components to their missions. And at the time, there was a historically large sandstorm, uh, dust storm that was taking place on Mars that Mariner 9 was taking pictures of. Because Mariner 9, all it was set to do was orbit the planet and take lots of photos. But Mars 2 and 3 were on a much tighter timeline. They can't just orbit the planet forever waiting for a window to launch. And there was also a lot of pressure in the USSR, like just in general, to to keep pushing ahead on this, right? To, to continue to be successful. And so they were on a much tighter timeline and they had to launch to the planet. And it's a big part of why Mars 2 and Mars 3 failed was that the, the condition, you know, it's bad luck. The conditions were historically bad. I think the USSR, they launched, I believe they had 18, it was 18 or 20 Mars missions and only two of them were successful. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we got, they got that data is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, again, to talk about, you know, in the spirit of international cooperation, you know, we still to this day use, like NASA uses the, a Russian rocket engine to send their payloads into space. Like the, the Atlas V rocket that sent Perseverance into space, the rocket engine is designed and built in Russia. And even for the longest time after the shuttle was decommissioned, as you know, certain SpaceX and other um, domestic space providers have been spinning up, astronauts are getting to the International Space Station via a Russian rocket that is launched from uh, Kazakhstan, if my memory serves correctly. Even at this time in the '70s, the Russian rocket was was still more significant, was still more sophisticated than the American rocket. They've they've had a stronger they have a stronger rocketry program, but you know, with a lack of international cooperation, it doesn't matter how strong your strengths are. And they were even making these huge strides forward in the technology within the rovers themselves and how they were going to communicate and how they were going to manage, you know, certain operations when they can't communicate easily between Earth and Mars. But again, it's really highlighting like, you know, NASA's learning some lessons and USSR is learning some lessons, but they're not sharing those lessons so that the other can apply them. So you're both having to learn the same lesson twice. So we have this we have this really high failure rate, right, for these missions. Mm-hmm. And let's talk touch on kind of why we're having all that failure. You know, we I mean we mentioned instrument failure, there could be math issues, there could just be technology, which I guess is instrument failure. 
But one of the main reasons why it's so hard to land something on Mars itself, like if you can get it to the planet and you're trying to land it, mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. back to that atmosphere that we talked about with Mars being so much thinner. Okay, so we got Earth, right? We have a certain amount of air. If you're dropping something from way, way high atmosphere, it's going to be pushed back by the air. So you're going to get a lot of like resistance, basically. This is, this is why parachutes work on Earth. Because you open up a parachute, it catches a lot of air, and it can slowly drop you down to the planet. Uh, but then you go to somewhere like the moon, where there's no atmosphere, a very, very lo- little atmosphere. And you can't use a parachute because nothing would happen. There's nothing for it to catch. So on somewhere like the moon, you have to use uh, what are called like thrusters. Mm-hmm. Like, or or retro rockets. Yeah. Retro rockets. Yeah. So they're like little little rockets that are pointing the opposite direction. And this is the, their job is to slow down the lander as it tries to reach the planet's surface. Fun thing about Mars is it has more like atmosphere and gravity than the moon, but way less than Earth. So as you send something through the Martian atmosphere, it gets really, really hot like it does on Earth. Like if you hear about like meteors or meteorites, right? As they come through, they start burning up. So it gets really hot. So you need some sort of heat shield, which is heavy. And you need to use, you can use like a parachute to get a bit of drag, but there's really not enough resistance there to keep you in the air and slow you down enough. So you also need rockets. So it's like the heaviest technology that you need, you need like all of the technology to bring it together. So getting something to actually land on Mars and then you have to like not get hit by space rocks and land on something, you know, like a nice stable surface. Cause if you accidentally land on a rock, I remember one of my first memories uh, of all the Mars missions was I think it was it curiosity. One of them got stuck. It had like the wrong treads and it got stuck in the sand. And I was like, really? Really, all these really smart people, and we got stuck there because there's just so many things that can go wrong trying to land on an alien planet. It's interesting you bring up uh, getting stuck in the sand uh, because that's that's another one of the kind of interesting differences between, uh, or one of the upgrades, I guess you could say, that Perseverance was made for Perseverance over uh, Curiosity was they had to change the design of the wheel because Curiosity's wheels were wearing down at a rate that they hadn't predicted. Like they knew that they were going to, you know, that they were going to get damaged, but they started really wearing down. And and it's one of the reasons why the mission sort of has kind of been scuttled. Mission over mission, we're learning so much about the surface of Mars. Uh, We can make those changes. And they've, uh, they tried a whole bunch of different ways to get this, the the rovers to land because oh yeah this, yeah. Is, this, is, one of, this is one of my favorites Same. <laughs> so they've got so they've got their parachutes they've got their heat shields they've got their and the heat shield is a thing that can take all the heat while keeping the contents relatively cool like kind of room temperature uh very important so that you know your very expensive robot doesn't just explode in the air so they've got all these fancy things but then to get it down to the planet my favorite one was they surrounded a rover in airbags Mm-hmm. So they did this for they did this for uh, Spirit and Opportunity. I know for sure, but I think actually Sojourner was yeah. uh, was was handled this way, which is the Mars Pathfinder mission. Yeah, and so so Sojourner is like it's kind of considered like kind of the grandfather of all these modern rovers. Mm-hmm. It was about the size of a microwave. So they've been getting they've been getting bigger as they've been going, but yeah. So they did it with this one too. Mm-hmm. They surround it with airbags, and they uh, it enters the atmosphere, goes through its parachute phase, and then it gets dropped. From this uh, this capsule, basically, it gets dropped and just like bounces along the planet until it comes to mm-hmm. to rest. And it would bounce like multiple stories high, like I think two or three stories high. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, if you've never seen it, it basically looks like um, <laughs> it looks like you ever see like the animated grapes drawn, you know, where it's just like 
purple circles in a little triangle. <laughs> yes. Like that's kind of what it looks like if you've never seen one of these. And yeah, you're right. Like it would bounce. Like it was dropped by such a from such a height that it's bouncing. Like you know the, the height of the Empire State Building several times before it kind of settles down. Yeah. yeah, they don't. They didn't use that one for per, uh, perseverance. They used a what's called a sky crane. Mm-hmm. Both for curiosity and perseverance. They were too large at that point for this same technology to work. Yeah. Right, yeah, because mm-hmm. we're talking like microwave to medium-sized dog up to an SUV in bigger size. So, uh, yeah, the the just surround it with airbags and drop it and hope for the best method wouldn't work so mm-hmm. well with the big ones. Yeah, and if you if you want to see how kind of the Sky Train, uh, Sky Train, Sky <laughs> Crane manages to kind of do this drop, there is a full video of Perseverance's landing on Mars, and it is it is quite spectacular. Highly recommend. Well, I first heard Skytrain, or Sky, <laughs> everything's Skytrain now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. First heard Sky Crane. I did not get how they got a crane there, but it's not a crane at all. It's like the rover's attached to this platform, and it basically gets like lowered down a Mission Impossible style on, on wires mm-hmm. to the planet surface. OG Mission Impossible. Yes, yes, the first one. <laughs> Way long, the one we all think of when they're, like... How would you, as a super spy, descend into an art gallery? I don't know if it's an art gallery. How would you descend to steal stuff? It's and a, you're on it, wires. It's a special safe, essentially. Oh, it's a like sp- a sort of. It, this is not a podcast <laughs> about the original Mission Impossible. But yeah, Sky Crane. Excellent. Yeah, so the Sky Crane is sort of the new, I, I'm going to say force du jour for landing rovers, but that's not really, it's just the most effective way to land a rover that size. It, it just doesn't bounce as well. Yeah, <laughs> which is probably good when you've got, you know, spectrometers and, and things of that nature kicking about. Yeah, and, and so that's, you know, like, yeah, there's all, and, and one of the other things that uh, is really interesting about trying to land a rover on Mars versus trying to land uh, even on the moon, right? You know, with the moon, a lot of it were these it's these manned missions to the moon. So one, right. you, you've, you've literally got the human element in the capsule, the, the good parts of the yeah. human element. <laughs> the ability uh, to control the technology and basically to drive. Yeah, and, and, to, and to course correct in very, very, very short order, right? And so when you think about the, you know, Apollo 11, that's a rocket with the computer intelligence of a Game Boy. Like, less than a Game Boy. Like, your 1990 Game Boy Color had more power than the Apollo capsule in terms of, like, raw computing power. So, of course, you can't have a computer like you do today that's going to be making all of these super intense adjustments. So you've got a person, you know, literally steering the, the rover, literally steering the, steering the, ra- the landing craft down. And, and and adjusting for there's a rock there or we wanted to land here but now we can't because there's a giant rock there whatever it might be right so um, a lot of there's a lot of rocks yeah. in space <laughs> you, you know you, you sort of say it's like oh no a rock like it's so mundane but like every everything in space is everything in space can kill you <laughs> I suppose <laughs> and, um, and yeah. with rocks like if you're sending this big piece, like this fancy piece of equipment down and it lands on a rock and it tips over yeah there's no one there to tip it back over yeah you know so One, you've got this human element. And even, you know, a guy sitting at a joystick, it's not the same as, you know, you're in the environment and you can, you get that, you've had that feedback from the equipment and things like that, right? And also just even, you know, you've trained for so long to do it. But the, uh, the big problem really is, is that like, you can't send a signal, even at the speed of light, from Earth to Mars instantaneously. It still takes some time. The uh, the shortest amount of time it will take is eight minutes. Mm-hmm. So at least eight minutes from one planet to get to the next one and come back. Mm-hmm. Like so a full it, round trip for a signal. Yeah, so it's not like you're texting your friend and you text them and they get it instantly. 
it's these radio signals, which is what they're using. They take, they're traveling at the speed of light. They're traveling really, really fast, but Mars is really, really, really far away. So it's going to take a lot of time to get there and back. Yeah, so you can't, you can't make these quick adjustments. Even when the Apollo missions were returning to Earth, which is, you know, in essence, a similar landing, more similar to, you know, than what it was like on the moon. But even when they were going to the moon, there were periods of radio silence, right? When they were on the dark side of the moon, they're orbiting back around the other side of the moon where NASA can't reach them because the radio signals can't bend, right? They're just going out into one direction. And then the same sort of thing when they're coming back and penetrating through the atmosphere. There's, there's this radio dead time because we can't get a signal to and from there cleanly or fast to get any data back and forth. And so that's the so then you've got all of these problems compounded over miles of distance. A lot of the historical failures of some of the landers to Mars are that things happen in the upper atmosphere that the computer on board needs to compensate for and little things that like whether you know early on just things that we didn't even think were possible to happen things we didn't even know about the planet that were affecting them so some of nasa's early missions one of them it was like the parachute never deployed because the sense the first reading from the sensor put the rover at something like 12 kilometers under the planet yeah <laughs> so it never deployed because it's like well i'm already on the ground so the computer you know the robot brain the computer and the robot is saying well you're on the ground you're on the ground you're on the ground yeah meanwhile it's literally free falling through yeah. a one percent atmosphere at you know thousands and thousands of miles and just smack uh and then your instruments are no good <laughs> it wasn't surrounded by airbags so yeah that's well, a problem yeah you know yeah, yeah <laughs> you're trying to rely on your retro rocket so it took so long to even just get that done and because that's like that's you're sending off a robot and just saying like good luck right yeah. like you, you mm-hmm. do all your your, mm-hmm. your prep and everything but then yeah you have this radio silence where you just gotta hope you did everything right and that nothing goes wrong, because like we said, everything can go wrong in space. You just got to hope that nothing goes wrong. <laughs> and, and this is, this is for me, this, this leads me to a point that I've been really interested to talk about, is, is, do you think that this has an impact on why the rovers hold such a, we, we become so endeared to them? Do you think it's because they have to have a level of autonomy in their action versus like, obviously, if we send a person into space, you know, sending a person to the International Space Station is still challenging, but it's become kind of mundane in our in our understanding of space travel. But there's this, obviously, we have this sense of, of fear for the human element, fear and, you know, fear and excitement because, you know, the, the, the sanctity of human life. But you've got this robot who, you know, by all intents and purposes is a robot, but you've sent it up there on its own and it has to be capable of making some rudimentary decisions on its own, otherwise it will die. And do you think that that's why they attract so much of our personification and, and we anthropomorphize them so much? I think so. I think it, it's, we've sent them off into the final frontier alone. There's no help. There's no assistance. There's no, like, they're just out on their own and they've got to do it all on their own. And they're sending us back really important data, like really cool data. They are, they're kind of carrying our hopes and dreams, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all the hopes and dreams of all the people who made them and who have hopes for future space travel and future space, like terraforming, like making planets habitable for humans. And so we take, we take all these hopes and dreams. And because the robot doesn't have a personality of its own, but it has this fun name like Curiosity, and curiosity being a, a trait of living creatures, that we say, oh, its name is curiosity. It must be curious 
because it's also it's doing science which is a naturally curious pursuit and it's out there and it's alone so you can kind of put your hopes and fears on it right and, and then i mean i think about like wally mm-hmm. right oh yeah i agree yeah and a great comparison yeah right and so wally alone on earth doing things for themselves and we see in that one that it has there's an ai involved there's a personality with wally but we put that personality on other robots mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting you you hinted at something i want to i want to talk about say for a little bit later um, about the names mm-hmm. uh for sure and and i think that that's part of it too is that you know obviously hats off to the jpl people you know they they have really created a story with the names of the rovers that I, I'm interested to talk about my perspective of it a bit, but I agree. Like I, I think, you know, they are, they're these blank slates. And so what one of these rovers might mean to me and might make it significant to me might be different than what you're putting on it. That's making it significant to you. But then we're unified in that it's becoming significant. And so it doesn't matter that, Oh, well, I think it's significant for these reasons, or you think it's significant for these reasons that, but that it's starting to, regardless of what we're putting on it different from one another it is both still attract there it's still attracting that kind of attention i suppose and humans just have a tendency to anthropomorphize everything that's right? true like, yeah it's just in our nature to look at something yeah. and humanize it i think it's a really good point we do we anthropomorphize everything and i think it you're gonna get that to the nth degree when you've got something that is a place where no one has ever been before you know, no human has stepped foot on the surface of Mars. These are our only envoys to the planet. And they are, and one of the really interesting things about perseverance and curiosity and the size of them is that now they're taking pictures from essentially a human vantage point as though a five foot 10 person were standing on the surface of Mars and looking out over the landscape. And so they, again, start to in hold within themselves this different sort of mythos and we're sending them to mars which is a planet that has been has captured human imagination for centuries now mm-hmm. like, it's like at least a century and a half i still remember the first time like i read war of the world and how I, you even think about like how a piece of fiction like that has even influenced why we're so interested in mars yeah mm-hmm. and i mean when i think about the first like i said i was wasn't super into sh- into space as a kid but I think the first space stuff I really knew about was Mars. Now, it was from a movie like Mars Attacks that I watched <laughs> when I was too young and had a lot of nightmares from. But there was Mars Attacks. And then there was this other one. It might have been the Red Planet. I don't know. But there's astronauts who land on Mars. And there's like there's like an evil something on Mars. But one of the astronauts gets like picked up by... This is a total, <laughs> total tangent. But gets picked up by like a tornado, essentially, one of these dust devils. And gets spun really, really fast and his arms shoot off. So there's so much like cultural and just human fascination with Mars. And we go back even further to the Greeks or the Romans, Mars as the bringer of war, as the god of war, as this red planet, this red dot in the sky. So we have this long storied history and, and attachment to Mars before we even got there, before we even had the capability to get even anywhere close. Mars was in our was in the cultural zeitgeist mm. of like so many nations as well, right? Well, exactly. You're right. I think you you hit the nail on the head by going back to the Greeks and the Romans, right? Is that before we even knew they were called planets, or we decided that that's the name we were yeah. going to use for them? Before we knew what they were. Before we knew what they were, we we had identified them and we had given them names, right? And we, and personalities based mm-hmm. on like Mars was red, God of War. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So I think that's a really good point. But but I I guess I would 
not challenge that, but like, what, why, why then, why Mars and not Venus? I, and I know that I think in our modern understanding, you could kind of explain it away by saying, well, we know quite well that Venus is really inhospitable to life. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I mean, obviously there were some, there have been some discoveries that have led to, you know, the potential that there might be some, some sort of life on, on Venus, but just the life that, as we understand it, like we know that we can't survive at 3000 degrees Kelvin. So like <laughs> we can't go to the surface of Venus. <laughs> Um, but, but before, but outside of the context of that kind of modern understanding, like why Mars or Venus? I don't know if I know enough about space stuff. No, that's fair. Yeah. It's a very opinion question. Yeah. In terms of the modern, more of a modern understanding that Mars is the planet that the space people chose to go to, right? Mars Mm -hmm. is the planet that they targeted first. They didn't target Venus. They targeted Mars. So I think our impression of why Mars was formed by that. Like, I think the the selection to go to Mars over Venus was from mm. the scientist perspective. But even if you look back, like, Venus is the goddess of love? Yeah, generally. Aphrodite, yeah. Venus, yeah. And it might... And who knows why they chose that, but I know Venus is bright, right? Yeah. So Venus is bright, whereas Mars is this red dot, and if that's all you're going on. And mm. I'm sure the motion of the planets has something to do. Like, Mercury which is the closest planet to the sun and moves, moves around really fast, was the like the messenger, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so that was just based on the movement of Mercury in the sky. So going back, that's how the planets kind of got named the way they did. And then scientists, when they were looking at like, which planet do we want to go to first beyond the moon, they were probably like, well, if we know certain stuff about Venus and Venus doesn't seem like it's a likely option, why not just go to Mars? Mm-hmm. And then if everyone kind of followed that same path and then we got the whole, all the, uh, all the stories around it, and now we're sending off this lonely rover to Mars, the war planet, where we have unlimited stories about Martians and aliens and attack. Yeah, and I think I, I do think it it even it's it's probably really closely related to Mar the search for water, I think, has really defined this as well. Is that like and and it's also not to say like I, I meant to say as well that there are a lot of missions that have gone to Venus, right? You know, there, there's a lot of probes that have gone there, even in the, the era of the, you know, the Soviet space race and things like that. Like, the, the Soviets were actually quite interested in, in Venus. They sent a few missions there. Uh, but I think I think that's just it, is that I think those early missions encountered things that were so challenging at the time and so clearly presented Venus as a planet that was just almost impossible to explore from us from the standpoint of the way that we're exploring mars today but also just like really early on would have given the impression of not being worth exploring that way because of how toxic the environment would have been for for humans and again it goes back to that kind of even that anthropomorphization of it we are going to be interested in things that are more relevant or closer to the human experience first so again greenhouse gas planet with 3000 degree kelvin surfaces does not appeal in the same way that a planet much like ours that we can imagine may have been like earth once and has kind of died you know Mm -hmm. one of the big stories that came out after viking yeah sorry yeah exactly like one of the reasons there's a huge gap between viking and pathfinder is because viking didn't find any conclusive proof of of life or water on mars and it was just again like you know the the instruments not being advanced enough the landing area not being as as good for that yeah. for that type of research, right? And Viking was launched uh, in 1975, Viking one and two, and then mm. Pathfinder wasn't until 96. So it's quite a quite a large gap in between, you know, in between them. And Venus and Mars are really the only options. 
Everything else is too far away. That's a, that's a really good thing to put it. You know, and we have sent things further, but like yeah. they're probes to take images and things. And we've gotten even better at that. You know, you think yeah. of the images we got from Pluto in the last decade. Those were amazing. Yeah, ex exactly. But you know, yeah, then the logistics of trying to land a rover are get even more complicated. I think that highlights a really good point: is that mastering one of the two is really a, is the key to being able to do Titan and Europa and those planets and moons that are of interest around, you know, the moons that are of interest around of around Jupiter and Saturn, especially. If you can't do it on Mars, you can't do it there. So that's why there's so much focus. And I think I think this really kind of rounds up that point. Or sorry, it's like I think we've kind of answered our question here is that you go out, you go out to the two that you can reach. Mm -hmm. One of them, the conditions are just not like everywhere else and don't aren't a good barometer for can we do this yeah. everywhere. So that you focus on the one where, hey, the, the probe's not going to be eaten alive by <laughs> all the chemicals that are in the atmosphere. Yeah, it's uh, a lot easier to, like, build a dome or, like, build an atmosphere mm -hmm. than deal with cooling down an entire planet. Yeah, yeah. I think, that's a very, I think that's a very, very, very good point. It's much easier to take something and build it up than to kind of, yeah, evacuate it into planet's entire atmosphere or whatever sort of sci-fi terraforming yeah. <laughs> lens you want to go down. Um, yeah, so, you know, so I think that it really highlights how far uh what you know obviously it's a super cliche in science to talk about you, know, you stand <laughs> on the shoulders of giants but the the fact that perseverance stands on the i always <laughs> say the bones of the other <clears throat> missions the, but the rocks yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the broken solar panels of previous <laughs> rovers but it does right like everything everything we've learned about mars and space in general mm -hmm. is at play in perseverance and that's why it's not like one of the to this extent one of the three missions hasn't really like failed so to speak i mean the interesting thing is that china's mission does have a lander component that they just have not launched yet the orbiter is going to orbit for some time i believe almost a year before they're going to attempt a landing so it'll be really interesting in another year or, or however long to see how that mission might go on so, you know, now we've talked a little bit about like what it's taking to get Perseverance to Mars mm -hmm. and what it's equipped with while it's there. But what is what is Perseverance really there to do? It's to determine if there was once life on Mars. It's one of the big mm -hmm. ones. Yeah, it's, it's really to find this like conclusive evidence of organic molecules that would have been produced or used by life. Yeah, it's, it's just like it's not looking for skeletons or fossils or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that... It's hard enough to find those things on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe something, you know, like crazy things happen all the time, but that's not the objective because to shoot for that for, as an objective would be, you know, it'd be a pipe dream. And what it's looking for, and that's why I, that's why I talked way too long about Raman spectroscopy, uh, <laughs> was that it, it's a way for it to analyze the, the surface and look for these specific molecules, these specific, mm -hmm. especially aromatic compounds because... They react in a particular way in spectroscopy, and they're easy to find. Very, so. very tiny, though. So you need this mm -hmm. really, like, the mm -hmm. more advanced the tech gets, the better able we are to look at for these really tiny, tiny things. Yep. It's like, was there water? Yes. Got it. Nailed it. If there was water, there could be life. Mm -hmm. But then when it, the Viking missions didn't find water, or didn't find... Proof of water, yeah. Proof of, yeah, definitive, proof of life. Definitive yeah. evidence that there was water. Yeah. yeah. People were kind of like, meh. But now, because technology has advanced so far, that they... They, we really do have the tools now. We're getting much closer to having the tools to determine, okay, are there markers of life as yeah. opposed to yeah. 
is there life? Mm-hmm. We're pretty sure there's not. Yeah. Uh, but was there once life? We can actually start to answer that question now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and because we know that, you know, there are certain things that we, we really know are markers of, of an atmosphere and things like that. Like even there have been experiments, because obviously the nature of the atmosphere on Earth is still somewhat of a mystery to science. Uh, but there's been lots of great experiments that sort of show different ways that some of the organic molecules may have formed on Earth to allow you know, life to start building. So, because one of the things that they do caution about as Perseverance starts looking for certain aromatics or organics, or even about some of the other organic discoveries that were made on Mars by other rovers, was that like some of these molecules, they can occur just by chemical reaction. So sometimes the presence of them isn't indicative of certain things itself. But what Perseverance is going to be able to do is look closer at those same things and with this really advanced spectroscopy to find, you know, are these molecules here the ones that actually mean life may have existed, not the ones that could just occur. And the where they're choosing to land the robots, these these landers as well, mm-hmm. is significant. And now that they're like, okay, well, this, I don't know if it's Perseverance or if it was Curiosity, but they landed one like in an ancient seabed. Yeah, that, yeah. So opportunity actually kind of got lucky because it, it was bouncing, right? And it bounced right. into into this crater. I do think they targeted the crater, but yeah, exactly. It was analyzing a high probability area. You know, they're not they're, they're not trying to land them on the tops of mountains mm-hmm. where there probably wouldn't be any evidence of that kind of water, that type of water. You know, standing running water. Yeah, and that's probably where if there were signs of life. They'd be mm-hmm. near the water. Mm-hmm. So what does then the future for, for Mars exploration look like? Obviously, there's this these three missions that are all orbiting right now are all in their key operational phase, and we're going to be getting tons of information from them over the next year. We talked a little bit about, you know, the ESA has some joint missions with NASA that are actually connected to Perseverance's missions that are probably, I think they're saying something like 2026, uh, potentially. But, you know, Mar- you know what, what are some of the things that are in the future for Mars? Potatoes. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Mark Watney over here. <laughs> there could be potatoes. I think that well, the next human thing that, that humans want to do is is put humans there mm-hmm. um, and try to either like build a Mars base or terraform the planet, which is a much, much bigger undertaking. That's where you have to build an atmosphere on the planet so that you can start getting it to the right temperature and make it a little calmer to support life. Temperature swings are wild on Mars, so trying to make it more habitable. But those are also, like, we talk about these as though they're, like, the next step. But who knows when that step could be taken because there are so many things that go into it. I, I know that NASA did did at one point, their, their plan was around 2030 to, to really start to gear up to a manned mission to Mars. So I, I, I do believe in the 2030s we'll see a manned mission uh, to Mars. Uh, you know, it'll depend on how the next decade goes. Because yeah. um, NASA has had some big uh, budget cuts in the last bit. Yeah, the hope, the hope is there, though. That And, and the other thing is, is that, yeah, the, actual, the previous administration, the goal was then set that, to return to the moon. But it's not as much of a hurdle to future Mars exploration as you might think. And in fact, it's actually going to be a critical part of, of going to Mars, is that the new moon mission is called Lunar Gateway. And the idea is to establish essentially a, a version of, like, the International Space Station in orbit around the moon that we can launch future missions from. And also a permanent moon base. 
And the reason that we'd want to do that is probably just to get closer to Mars, right? Exactly. And yeah. again, you're, you know, the moon versus the Earth, you're, you don't need to... And even in terms of space exploration from Earth, we have long talked about launching from a space station because you're already in space and you don't have to bring... You don't really have to bring any of your... Any conventional fuel. If you're going from space to space you know, like within space, the vacuum of space and not landing on another planet, you don't actually have to have any conventional fuel. You can use some of these other types of fuel, like, you know, you know, ion propulsion and things like that, because you're, you're not fighting against the same types of frictions or trying to escape the gravity of another planet. So that's, that's a big thing that I think that Lunar Gateway will be a big, play a big role in missions, not just to Mars, but in particular to to planets beyond Mars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all those moons we talked about. Yeah, exactly, right? There's only there's only like 40 some to explore around Jupiter alone. So, and they're more. They're discovered like they discover moons of Jupiter and Saturn like pretty much every year. Well, they're so vast that they just kind of attract any if anything is floating by in space and it gets kind of close to one of these giant planets, their gravity is so vast that it just kind of like just like corrals it, brings mm-hmm. it a little closer, and then it starts orbiting Saturn or Jupiter because it just can't get away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you know, to kind of to kind of start to put a to put a bow on it a little bit, I think now is really interesting. We can talk about why this particular rover launch, more so than others in recent memory, at least for me, seems to have garnered a lot of attention. Yeah, like it is everywhere right now. Yeah, my uh, social media feeds were full of uh, that. Like, this is what it would be like if you stood on Mars and it's that 360 photo, like, it's everywhere. And, I, you know, it is really interesting to talk about why Mars exploration, it's so meaningful to so many people, or why it captures our imaginations in so many ways. And just, like, how, how we feel about Mars exploration, right? Because I think there's a lot of, it's a complicated subject. The technology and the engineering alone is an issue for space exploration. But like I said earlier, you know, so much about space exploration in today's world is a PR battle. It's about keeping people interested and and convincing them that the astronomical price tags are worth it and why they need to be so astronomical, right? Like it's easy to see like, ah, this rover cost a billion dollars and freak out about like a billion dollars, that's so much money. But, you know, and this is something unfortunately that science really struggles with, I think science and scientists really struggle with is communicating why a billion dollars is the meaningful way to do that. Why you need to spend a billion dollars. Why that billion dollars is a worthwhile investment. Uh, And it's easy to forget, even to the point where there's technologies that were developed to get someone onto the International Space Station that are at play in your everyday life. But it is, it's hard to look at something, especially something with, you know, a potential failure rate so high of, okay, we're gonna put a billion dollars of our very limited capital into this project. And, and time too. I mean, it doesn't, it's not like these rovers get built overnight and launched overnight. They take years. And there are scientists who are thinking, basically, uh, I think I'd be really good at this job. It's the catastrophized job. <laughs> uh, you just, yeah. you just get to sit down yeah. and overanalyze and think of what could go wrong. And the answer is everything. So you got to figure out like contingencies and how to solve mm-hmm. all of those things. So it takes a lot of yeah time and yeah. money and then just launching it. Like I think like the closest the closest window we have to get something to Mars is like seven months-ish. Yeah. Just kind of like, dude, and wait. But space exploration, when when we pay attention to it, it captures our imaginations like almost nothing else. I mean, think of 
Star Wars and Star Trek, right? Two of the biggest series. We're heading off into reaches unknown, the vastness of space, the opportunities of space, the terror of space. Like it, it captures yeah. our imaginations. It's like sending something out to the middle of the ocean. Like imagine being out in the middle of the ocean is a terrifying thought. But now imagine you're on a boat in space. Mm -hmm. Like if something goes wrong, it's, <laughs> it's really, really wrong really fast. When, when these space agencies, if they can continue capturing that side of it, then they, they can keep our imagination. But they have to always be having something new they're striving for, which is part of why the moon stuff, I think, fell off, fell off with interest of people. Because they were like, oh, we got to the moon. What is it? Rocks? All right. And then they were like, why do we have to keep going there? But if you, can, if you can be building on it and you can be always looking to the future and you can explain it in a way that people understand and that can, and that can get people involved in that emotional way. And I think that's part of where these rovers and their anthropomorphizing has really helped all mm -hmm. this exploration. Because like, yeah, you can send a person, but a person already comes with a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like these robots are blank slates for us to put on all of our stuff on them. And I think with Perseverance, it was named through a competition. Oh, really? Like, yeah, students got to write essays about oh. what they thought the name should be, and it was Perseverance. Oh, I don't have the quote. <laughs> it was Perseverance because that's what the robot is going to have to do when it's on the planet, is it's going to have to persevere, mm. which is what we've talked about, right? Like, it's going to have to solve problems on its own. It's mm -hmm. alone out there. It's going to have to do all of this without help. And it's also comparable to what we have to do to continue and further ourselves in space is to persevere. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because... I, I wanted to paint this a bit of a picture from kind of Pathfinder to Perseverance. And I think a both, <laughs> a little bit of a bittersweet story, I think about how human civilization is going in the 20th and 21st century. Oh, good. Light, uh, light, light topic. <laughs> right. So you've got, you've got, so the Mars mission that had Sojourn on it. Sojour, Sojourner is the rover. The mission was Pathfinder. And obviously Pathfinder tons and tons of connotation behind what that means to be a pathfinder sojourner makes me laugh even in the sense that like it was a test right again to test this you know can we put a rover on mars can we land it this particular way can we transmit back and forth so you think about like a sojourn is a short trip or a little oh, little break right? right so sojourner she's taking a short trip on mars so it <laughs> kind of makes me laugh a little bit because pathfinder yeah. <laughs> and then, no that's a journey you just yeah i'm just gonna go for a sojourn and then you go into then you go into to spirit and opportunity and these are missions in the early 2000s. And you think about what those words mean. And, and opportunity especially. I'll get to opportunity in a minute. But like, because it's the, really the one that has so captured our imaginations. Just because it, it, it lasted for so long. And, and it's not to say that spirit didn't accomplish amazing things in its lifespan. It's just that it didn't, it died sooner than opportunity did. And opportunity just kept going. Yeah, like 15 years beyond what they thought, right? Yeah, beyond the, beyond sort of it's. They use the word warranty, <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, we talked about warranty a little bit, and uh, before uh, you know, before the podcast, and talking about like warranty is a very cold word for it. Yeah, and so news sites, like you said, will use words that are more humanizing. Yeah, um, and I actually wonder if there's an intentionality behind. You know, I'm sure NASA or NASA scientists colloquially say things like outlasted or outlived, right? They probably prefer that language for the rovers as well. But in like communique, like official communique, it's warranty. Yeah. And I actually think it's it's probably important to have that balance of, okay, we've got to pull it back into the realm of, you know, lifespan implies that it was supposed to die after 13 months. But warranty means that the mission was, everything was designed to make sure that we could get this amount of time studying. And then everything else is gravy. 
You know, it's like if we can do 13 weeks of study, that's worth the price tag. Everything else, you know, money in the bank. But anyway, so with, you know, you got spirit and opportunity and, and this idea of the human spirit and then the opportunity. And I think it really speaks a little bit to the positivity of, of that of, of that era of going into the 2000s when these rovers would have been being designed. And then and then you've got curiosity and now you're kind of into the, you know, the mid 2010s. And I think at a period in time where human technology is proliferating at this like insane rate. And we are, we're looking out into the world with a, more of a sense of curiosity, I think. And, but then I think you do, I laugh a little bit in my own headcanon almost. Perseverance marks a bit of a shift uh, in the way that these rovers have been named. Because again, they're all about qualities of the human, you know, the human being, the human spirit. I know spirit is one of them, but, you know, and perseverance being a key component of, of a human being, right? But you do, I think you start to see the the current state of things creep in, in that we are, these rovers are now, they're not about scientific curiosity solely anymore. They're not fun little missions to Mars. I mean, they, they never were. But now within the collective consciousness of society, I think we recognize that these rovers may play key components in humanity's survivability long-term, even beyond can we solve the crises facing us here on earth regarding the climate and things like that. And, and, you know, the socioeconomic problems that we face in short order to protect this planet, but even long-term, eventually earth will not be habitable for human beings, regardless of what we do. And if humanity wants to become the ultimate type three civilization, type three and type one, mm -hmm. type two being fancy future space colonization. If if you want to, yeah, you can look up the Kardashev scale. We are a type zero civilization. We don't have a presence really in space. We're not even on the scale. So the (laughs) argument would be the gap between type zero and type one is like, the gap between us and an ant. Like an ant has a super sophisticated society, but they can't do the things that a human creature can do. You can't create the tools, can't think rationally, doesn't have the same sort of self-awareness. We got a long way to go. Yeah. And I mean, obviously like on the Kardashev scale, there are specific measurements of like, what is a type one? What is a type two? What is a type three? And it's more of a science fiction almost scale that's used to talk about civilization progress and also to try to explain why we may have not encountered any other intelligent life to this point is because the gap between zero and one is like insurmountable and there's you know and you you know again the Kardashev scale could be in and of itself a whole episode because it talks it speaks a lot to what our goals are as a society but this this goal of getting to a type three civilization is such a such a hopeful human goal Mm -hmm. kind of on the back of this like deep fear that we have that we're not going to solve our problems yeah. and that we are going to have to leave this planet or eventually mm-hmm. if we know we don't the, the idea with the, the getting from type zero to type one is you have to not destroy yourself first uh yeah. and the the thought is that just based on like laws of probabilities and things civilizations tend to destroy themselves before they can get to mm-hmm. cooperate mm-hmm. enough right we talk about cooperation a you lot. even think about the civilizations that have disappeared on earth right yeah exactly it kind of gets to a point where people this is a lot of Stopping cooperation happens a lot, but if we can get beyond that and we can, we can save ourselves and we can move forward rather, not just about exploration, but it's about hope. It's about saving ourselves. It's about getting past this point and then 
hopefully maybe being able to help others. Like there's a whole colonization aspect mm. to mm-hmm. space travel and things, but and an accessibility aspect of it. But if we can get to the point where we have a colony on the moon, we have a colony on Mars, then it creates this new opportunity for humans. I mean, but to get there with like going back to the names with perseverance, we've gone away from this like really hopeful name to this point where we're like, we gotta be a little practical here. You know, we are, uh, mm-hmm. we are not expecting this to be fast. So pump the brakes. It's, we have this weird relationship mm-hmm. with technology, right? Like mm-hmm. we all, ex- we all anticipated we would have, uh, Flying cars, ha- yeah. Flying cars and hoverboards <laughs> by the 2020s and all yeah, of this stuff. All right, stuff. Marty. Stuff. Marty McFly. You're welcome. Uh, but we did not predict we'd have supercomputers in our pockets. Yeah, that's so, right. That's a really good point. Right? So mm-hmm. we think, like, we're going to have a civilization on Mars by whatever. And who knows if we're going to make that marker. Technology continues to move forward, but space travel has not progressed at the rate we expected. So we yep. are now into yep. a phase of... We got to persevere on this. We have to mm. keep pushing on it because if we don't keep pushing on it, we are never going to find it. That's a really, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I, I laugh because I almost shouldn't have jumped to if we want to be a type three civilization. <laughs> I should have said if we want to even be a type one civilization. But type three is the stuff. goal, right? Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. As you know, kind of that, that mate, when you think about the empire. Yeah, or the, the, <laughs> la- yeah, the, the longevity of the human race out to the point of almost infinity, right? Like that's sort of what, what it would take. Um, I mean, we're getting super speculative, but yeah. A little ways down the road. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You were talked about that 360 photo and, and I mean, I love, like, I mean, I have consumed so much of the, the footage and the photos and even like the sounds, like there's a great 18 second clip you can find of, of the sounds of Mars. The first sound from another planet. Mm-hmm, exactly. And all these you know, I, I, I have been even to the point where like I have been almost like moved to tears with some of this stuff because it is so meaningful to me. Uh, it's so meaningful to my journey in science, of course, but but just in, it, it just and it does. It speaks to the best parts of humanity, I think. But it's interesting that I look at that. I look at that 360 photo and it is it is unbelievable to think about. Right. To, to put yourself in this perspective of this is what it would be like if I were standing on Mars. But the thing that really strikes me. And I think it would strike, you know, if we were to really stand there, it would really, really dawn on you, is it is so barren. It is a lifeless planet. It is a dead planet. There is no, there is no complex life on Mars. I mean, I, I'll say that and in 10 years, they'll find some giant purple earthworm from Dune underneath yeah. the surface. But It's always a worm. Yeah, well, <laughs> it is. But that's sort of my point, right? Is that like, there's obviously nothing... There's nothing obvious. There's no skyscraper on the surface of Mars, right? There's there's not even the remnants of something like that. And so we talk a lot about, or you hear, you know, out-of-touch billionaires like Elon Musk, I'm going to get us downvoted to hell just by saying that. But like, you know, you, you do, you hear these people talk about like, oh, well, Mars is the future. We got to, you know, we want to colonize Mars or we're going to terraform Mars and make Mars habitable for human beings. And that almost seems to come before the conversation of like, how do we stop the earth from reaching a point of inhabitability? Yeah. And and you talk, and sometimes you hear a lot of these interviews with astronauts, people who've been aboard the international space station and people like Chris Hadfield, especially. And they talk about the fact that like, we need to stop. It's great. We should always, like you said, we should persevere on this mission of Mars exploration, of space exploration, and doing these challenging things on other planets because it's valuable in and of itself. 
But we almost need to move away from this thought of like we doing it because Mars is our lifeline. Yeah, we got to run away. Exactly. <laughs> because one of the things you'll hear these some of these astronauts especially say is that there is no other planet that we know of like Earth. Right? We have found some far, far off neighbors that we think might have similar conditions. But we don't know. And they're not reachable. Yeah, they're so far. Exactly. It's the only one we got. And it is, quote unquote, perfect for the human animal because we evolved here. And it is hubris to think that we could just give up on this planet and pop ourselves onto another and make an atmosphere and make it habitable for life in the same way that Earth is. And so that, for me, is it's the sobering aspect of watching the rover touch down and and being amazed by the technology and being so excited for the things it's going to discover and then looking at that photo and imagining myself on Mars and reminding myself that this has to always remain plan B like you know <laughs> and we get so wrapped up in terraforming and colonizing Mars and it's just really important to remember I'm not saying that those thoughts or those dreams come at the expense of solving the problems on Earth but it's always important to contact like and to bring us back to we're not doing this. This is not the escape hatch. Yeah. This is to help us understand how to stay better. And like the only reason we've gotten to the point we have a space exploration is because we started working together, right? Exactly. So that, that cooperation exactly. is so integral to success in space. Mm-hmm. And if we could just take that same mentality of like sharing data and sharing knowledge mm-hmm. and working together for a common goal as opposed to constantly working antagonistically to each other, like always working Mm -hmm. against each other. If we could apply that same mentality of working as a team for this planet, as we are trying to do for Mars, I think it would serve us very, very well. Like we take that spirit and just put it back on earth. We can't have a space thing without mentioning Carl Sagan. So (laughs) (laughs) the, the whole idea of the, the, that it was that last image from Voyager Voyager, Mm -hmm. as it drifted far, far away Mm -hmm. We are all on a pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam. So this this idea that we are all here together, and that's one thing that astronauts talk about. If they've been to the space station, they talked about that moment where they turned around and, and they saw the Earth from the space station and this realization that we are all in this together. Yeah, it actually has a name, but it, it is. There's a, there is an actual cognitive effect when you look down at the Earth from the perspective of the International Space Station. Overview? Yeah, the overview effect. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, so that effect that these astronauts experience when they look back at Earth is the overview effect because it does. It gives you an overview. So you're not just like on your little, not like you're not in your little house, in your little city, in your little country, on your little mm-hmm. uh, continent. You realize that like no, no, we are all on a on a rock, flying through space where literally anything can happen. Mostly rocks. And you're seeing the earth from that perspective as a living being, you know, as a living system. You're seeing the weather in real time. You're watching lightning strikes. You're seeing, you know, almost to the point where you're seeing seeing light. You're seeing ocean current, you know, like. And and across mm -hmm. these these boundaries. Yeah. All of the ones that like, you you know, you perceive in your mind. The boundaries between provinces, the boundaries between countries. Yeah, exactly. You, You notice how the clouds just drift past them. You see the ocean as, it's not the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, it's the ocean. It's one giant system, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think like we're, we've gotten, we've tangent ourselves off, but yeah, like I mean, and that's I think like, 
I think it goes back again, like we, we can wax poetic about this kind of stuff because in particular perseverance or just for Mars, sorry, Mars exploration in particular really just captures our imaginations about those things. But it represents the best, most hopeful aspects of humanity. And I think even actually I was going to say like why I think perseverance may be whole, like why it has attracted so much attention at this point in time is because we know that like to do these things requires this great spirit of cooperation and it is coming at a time where that type of cooperation has not been easy to find among countries and among people and we and there's been a lot of great cooperation and there's been a lot of struggle with cooperating together Mm -hmm. and i think that maybe this is one of those things that again it captures us like you said the best parts of what humans can achieve when we cooperate and i think we really we throw our all of that into this stationary this this non-living object and it becomes meaningful that way. And it's just out there alone in space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think that takes us that that takes us kind of through this story. You know, um, there's lots of great information about there about perseverance. We are, of course, we're not we're not experts. We're not rocket scientists. Uh, we're not. Um, it doesn't impress anybody much. Yeah. <laughs> we're, oh dear. We're not. We're not engineers. You know. We you know, we have, we have expertise and we, we lend it to try to talk about these things, but there's lots of great information out there. Check out the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, web pages about Perseverance. There's some really good mm-hmm. videos on YouTube that explain, uh, especially the landing. Why is it so hard to land on Mars? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and really make sure you, you know, check out that raw footage of, from Mars, like the, and the various, you know, the landing and the photos that are taken. And, and that 360 mm-hmm. photo. And you know, like, let us know what you think, and you know, let us know what your opinions are when you see those when, when you see those things. We have been temporary, temporary experts. experts.